Well, welcome. My name is Rob Collis. Uh, I have been on our staff team, on our pastoral team, and this is unfortunately my last day on our pastoral team. And it's a joy to be here with you today. It's always a joy to be here with you, and such a joy and a gift to preach. Um, today is the first Sunday in the season of Lent, uh, and Lent is often known as, as the season for fasting and repentance. Uh, but as, as Abby and Natasha were reading for us and, and teaching us how to do the proper responses to the gospel readings, um, our readings today weren't really about Lent and fasting and repentance, were they? Did you catch that? Our readings were about baptism. Did you notice that? Uh, this week as I was preparing, I wasn't thinking to myself, oh, you know what, I think my last sermon for St. Pete's should be about baptism. Uh, that's definitely what the final word should be when you preach. It's actually a good word to preach, but... No, these are the traditional readings to, to look at in the first week of Lent. But as I've been preparing for this sermon, I kept asking myself the question, what does baptism have to do with Lent? Now, it's common to think of Lent as, as a season of fasting. That's what it's known for. Grady had a really helpful letter that he sent out to the church uh, on the email loop. If you're not signed up, you should sign up on the website. We don't spam you. We just send you like a weekly update and occasional letters. And he talked about that, but Lent is traditionally about, known as fasting, and, and there's three things that Lent is traditionally marked by in, the, in the, the church tradition and calendar. First, it's a season of preparation. Specifically, it's a season of preparation for people who are looking to get baptized, which traditionally happens on Easter. Uh, second, it's a season of reconciliation within the church, which is kind of an interesting one. And that's especially uh, for people who have been estranged from the church, and, being reconciled with people within the church, which is beautiful. And lastly, Lent is a season of reflection and renewal. It's a time for all of us to think about the ways that we have drifted from our faith and to turn back to God. And when we combine all of those things together, we said that Lent really is, is a season of the church calendar that's, that's been set apart for us to do some heart work. You see, it's when we can recapture our love for God and for his kingdom. It's when we can, can cast off all the practices and behaviors and beliefs that have entangled our hearts, where we can pull away the weeds that have distracted and, and pulled us away from our love in Jesus Christ. And that's actually where fasting comes in. If you're wondering how does fasting fit in, fasting is functioning like this, this spiritual weeding. Because ultimately, Lent is a season of, of realigning our hearts so that Jesus can rekindle our love for him and realigning our hearts so that he can reignite the joy of our salvation. And the way we do that is by going on a kind of a, a pilgrimage. It's a journey walking with Jesus through the wilderness for 40 days. As we press into him and journey with him towards the cross and towards the empty tomb. And we model this, this pilgrimage, this journey, we model it off of Jesus' own journey in the wilderness which started at the very beginning of his ministry. And that journey for him began with something unusual. It began with baptism. So today, I want to look at Jesus' baptism and the temptation in the wilderness that he faced. And then I want to consider our own experience with temptation and what baptism means for us as we walk through the wilderness for ourselves. So if you're taking notes, if you like, like little headings, uh, Jesus' baptism... Jesus' temptation, our temptation, our baptism. I know it's a four-point sermon, 
It'll be okay. It'll be okay. Uh, let's begin with Jesus' baptism. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 1, beginning verse 9. Uh, if you don't have a physical Bible, we've got copies in the back at the table. You're welcome to grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, please take one of those with you. It's our, it's our gift to you. Uh, you can also just pull it up on your phone. Uh, someone was sharing with me that they love it when I say that you can, your face can be illumined by the Word of God. Um, so you can pull it up on your phone too. And it'll also be on, behind me on the screen. Uh, Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Now, before Jesus ever began his ministry, before he, he preached the Sermon on the Mount, before he gave sight to the blind, healed the sick, or cast out demons, before any of that, he went to see John the Baptist. He went to see John, and he got baptized in the Jordan River. So why, why did Jesus get baptized? I mean, we get baptized as Christians because Jesus told us to. He actually said that in his final instructions to his disciples. And we understand that, that baptism is the mark of the new covenant. And there's, there's a number of places all throughout the New Testament where we can learn more about the significance of baptism, especially for us in our journey of faith. But Jesus also got baptized. And I, I don't fully understand why he did. Just put my cards on the table. But in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, it, Jesus explains to John, because John's like, why are you getting baptized? He says, it is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. So somehow, Jesus' baptism fulfills all righteousness. And somehow, Jesus getting baptized was an act of obedience towards the Father. And the result is ultimately to our benefit. But there's, there's a better question for us to dwell on. Jesus got baptized to fulfill all righteousness. But what happened when Jesus was baptized? What happened? In verse 10, we read, As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. The moment Jesus was baptized, heaven was torn open. We could say it was, it was split apart the way you might tear a piece of fabric. In fact, in, in the Greek, this is the same word that's used to describe what happened in the temple when Jesus died on the cross. The, the veil in the temple, it, it was torn, it was split in two, ripped down the middle from top to bottom, and, and that was to demonstrate that there was no longer any separation between God and humanity. God and his holiness was no longer inapproachable. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, making atonement for our sins, we could now approach the throne of God and draw near to him in confidence in Christ. And so too, in Jesus' baptism, heaven was ripped open. Heaven was ripped open and the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove and rested on Jesus. Heaven came to earth and in love, God reached down towards the world he made. Heaven was split open. The Spirit descended. God's presence was profoundly and viscerally evident and touched the earth, and a voice spoke from heaven. 
It was the Father. It was the Father, and he said, You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And quickly, in those words, there's an identity, there's a relation, and an attitude. The identity, you are my Son. The Father speaks over Jesus, and he identifies him. Jesus, you are my Son, the Son of God the Father. You are the co-eternal Son, fully God, the person of the Trinity. Jesus' identity is powerfully and clearly declared. Co-eternal Son of the Father. You are my Son. And then there's a relation, whom I love. So not only the Son of God the Father, but deeply, fully loved in his entirety. Whom I love. Beloved. Unconditionally, holistically, all-consumingly loved by God the Father. The way God relates to Jesus, the nature of the Father towards the Son, the entire connection and property of his outlook towards him, and the means of relating with him is one of unconditional love. So there's an identity, there's a relation. You're my son whom I love. And then there's an attitude. With you, I am well pleased. The father is pleased with Jesus. We could even say he is delighting in Jesus. He's enjoying and taking pleasure in him. The Father's attitude and disposition towards the Son has always been and will forever be delight and enjoyment. It's one thing to be loved, and that's wonderful, but but it's an even deeper thing to be delighted in. Uh, I love my my daughter. Uh, Gemma is a little over a year and a half now. That wasn't her crying in the room. Um, That was another wonderful little child. Um, And I love Gemma. And when she wakes up in the middle of the night, I... I try to express my love to her as well as I can by helping her to get back to sleep. Uh, But in those moments, I have to confess, I don't usually feel delight in her. At 3 a.m., I just want to go back to sleep. But there are other moments when I experience my delight in her, when I play with her, and when I witness her joy as she plays, or when she tries to say something, and I actually understand what she's saying, which is kind of fun. Or as I see her growing up and just hitting all these developmental markers in her life. And I feel this deeper attitude of delight in my daughter. And I get these these experiences of delight, and and they fuel my love towards Gemma, and they they deepen my love for her. But the the delight that I feel, that that experience can fade, especially when it's 3 a.m. But God's delight never fades. It's always there. It's not dependent upon circumstance. It's unconditional. When Jesus was baptized, heaven was ripped open and the Spirit descended upon Jesus. And the Father declared over him, this is who you are, my son. This is how I relate with you and to you. Beloved, completely loved. And this is how I feel about you. I am always delighting in you. And by the way, I'm going to come back to this later, but those words declared over Jesus from heaven are declared over us too. My child, daughter, son, you are beloved, loved completely and unconditionally inside and out. And I delight in you. 
I delight in you, not with a fleeting and situational delight, but with an eternal, unconditional delight. Those are the words that God the Father has said and is saying over you. May you hear that and feel that. May it go from your head down into your heart and into your bones. Because that's what God's saying over you. That's what God wants to kindle in your heart this Lent as we walk through the wilderness. So to rekindle the flame in your heart, which, which comes from belonging to him. Now, no sooner has all that been said over Jesus and declared over Jesus than, than he's whisked off into the wilderness. And I'm struck, I'm struck this morning sitting with that. Like, that happens to us too, doesn't it? Like we hear God say something profound over us and then we go about the rest of our day and just, life just falls apart. Like, what's the deal, God? I want to look at Jesus' temptation together now. Because in verse 12, we read, At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. Now, Mark doesn't really elaborate on how Jesus was tempted. But Matthew's gospel does. And we learn that Jesus was tempted three times in the wilderness. Uh, one, One commentator explains that there's this important nuance in the Greek here. Uh, when it says that Jesus was going to be tempted by Satan, the, the Greek carries a, uh, a sense of a purposive completeness to it. And there's a purposive completeness to this tempting specifically. It means that Jesus was going to be tested to the finish. The devil was going to exert the full extent of his power, and God was not going to show any restraint. Satan took his gloves off, and Jesus received everything that he had. The first time he tempts him, Satan questions the legitimacy of Jesus' identity. He questions whether he really is the Son of God. And he says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, his, his ploy, it doesn't work. Jesus quotes scripture back to him. He quotes uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, and he says, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Satan's foiled. He tries again. Second time he tempts him, again, he goes after his identity. And he cites a promise from God of how he was going to protect Jesus with his angels. And again, Jesus appeals to the scriptures, and he cites Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. He says, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, in these first two temptations, Satan is trying to undermine Jesus' trust in the Father. The first time, he's trying to get Jesus to distrust the Father, to not trust in the Father's provision and in what God has said he will do. The second time, he's trying to get Jesus to have a misplaced trust or or a false trust in the Father, to twist what God has said to make it feel like God has promised something different from what he has. And both times when he does that, Satan is trying to undermine Jesus' trust in the Father by specifically questioning the legitimacy of his identity. He says, if you are the son of God. See, he's waging this this steady, unrelenting assault on Jesus' identity. At his baptism, just, just moments ago, Jesus heard the father say, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And Satan says, are you so sure of that? Really? I, I don't know. I mean, if you were, maybe you should test it out or something. You know, just prove it somehow. Because that just doesn't make sense to me. 
puts this little bug in his ear. Because you see, he's trying to undermine Jesus' own confidence in the Father's declaration. He's trying to undermine his identity as God's son. To undermine his sense of being beloved. He's trying to get Jesus to think that God can never delight in him. And as he sows these seeds of doubt, he's teeing up for one final blow. In, in the third temptation, sin comes right out and he says, I'll give you everything. All of it. Just, just bow down to me. Choose me. Let my words and my deceit and lies redefine who you are. And thankfully, Jesus doesn't do it. He says, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But do you see? Everything that Satan is trying to do in the wilderness, it's an attempt to undermine and, and to obfuscate what God has already said and done at Jesus' baptism. He tried to undermine his identity as the son of God. He tried to discredit the Father's love towards him. And he tried to cause him to no longer believe and trust that the Father delighted in him. And this is often what lies behind our own experiences with temptation underneath the surface. And this is getting to our, our third point for those of you taking notes. Um, but let's just look at our own experience with temptation for a bit. Because you see, underneath much of our own temptations and struggles in following Jesus there's a deliberate and insidious attempt to undermine the identity that we have received in Christ. Have you ever noticed that? It's underneath the surface. It's this, this sort of bug in our ears, casting doubt whenever we come and face temptation. If you belong to Jesus, though, you have been washed clean from your sins, and you've been given a white robe of righteousness. You have been raised to life in Christ and been given the righteousness of Christ. A former pastor of mine used to say that in Jesus, there is nothing you have done that can make God love you any more than he already does. Because he loves you completely. And in Jesus, there is nothing you have done in the past or will ever do in the future that can make him love you any less than he already does. Because he loves you completely. But the enemy says, are you so sure? Are you really God's child? Are you sure he loves you? There's no way he could delight in you. And then just, just to prove how insidious he is, in those moments when we fall into temptation, when we stumble and fall, he's the voice in our head that says, there's no way God could love you now. Right? There's no way he could delight in you after messing up like that. Because he's the father of lies. And that's what he wants to put in your ear. So hear me. Satan is a liar. He is a liar, and his purpose towards us is to obfuscate the gospel. He's trying to muddy it up and, and complicate and confuse us about God's love and about the realities of sin and forgiveness. He's trying to confuse us so that we would look for life from somewhere else, so that we would bow down before a substitutionary God. And his dealing with us, he will always try to discredit our God-given identity, he will always try to undermine God's love towards us. He will always try to make us question God's goodness, and he will always make us doubt that God could ever delight in us. We could say it like this. He's always trying to make us despair of our salvation, to doubt God's goodness, to distrust or mistrust the promises of God that he has made to us in Christ. Satan is a liar. 
And here's the truth. God looks at you and he says, you are my child whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. In you, I delight. I always will. Jesus looks at you and his heart keeps breaking for you with love and compassion no matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've fallen, no matter what, how deep the pit it is that you are in. He reaches out his hand in, in tender, compassionate love and affection. And he says to you, I love you. I love you and I delight in you. Come be with me, my child. Friends, Jesus didn't die on a cross because you could save yourself. He died on a cross because only he can save you and because you need saving. And this is where it all comes back to our baptism. This is our fourth point, our final point. So, so far we looked at Jesus' baptism and temptation in the wilderness. We've seen what happened in our own experience with temptation. So finally, I want to explore what baptism means for us as we walk through the wilderness. 500 years ago, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther famously said, whenever Satan would tempt me to despair of my salvation, I would remember my baptism. Whenever Satan would tempt him to despair of his salvation, to try and, try and obfuscate the gospel and to sow doubts of God's love towards him and his identity in Christ. Luther says that he would remember his baptism. Now, I don't think he was remembering the, and picturing in his mind the exact moment when he was baptized. And that's because, you see, he, he was baptized as a baby, as like everyone else was 500 years ago. And actually, like how most people are baptized, the majority of the world today. And I, I'm not going to make a, a defense of infant baptism. I'd love to chat about that with you. Uh, now is not the time. If you want to learn more, come chat with me, chat with Lloyd, with Grady, with Phil. would love to talk to you about infant baptism. Um, but what Luther remembered wasn't what happened in his baptism as he experienced it. What he remembered was the fact of his baptism. He was baptized. And for him, baptism wasn't about what he had done. It was all about what God had done for him. And the Bible says a lot about what God does for us through baptism. In 1 Peter, as we heard earlier, it explains that our baptism is a pledge of a clear conscience towards God. And in Romans, we learn that in our baptism, we're buried with Christ into his death, and then we've been raised with him to fullness of life. So baptism means that in Christ, we have a clear conscience before God, and we've died to our sins and been raised to fullness of life with Jesus. But Jesus adds something else to this. And I hope you can hold on to this today because you see, in Jesus' last words to his disciples, he includes some instructions about baptism. And in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So he says that we're to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In the name of. That's kind of a weird thing to say, isn't it? What, what does that mean? We could easily assume it means like on behalf of the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Or, or with the authority of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. And that one could maybe make some sense. 
There's something to that effect. But the theologian J.I. Packer, uh, he helpfully explains that this phrase means something very different than that. He says that in the Greek, it, it literally is into the name of. And it comes from Matthew's original world of law, banking and business, where its context was transfer of ownership. He says that we speak similarly when we deposit money or register property into the name of someone else who is to possess and use it henceforth. So when the baptizer says that he baptizes in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, what he is announcing is that the person being baptized is being made over, designated, consecrated, given up to the Holy Three as his or her joint owners, and so is being brought, as we might say, under new management. We're being designated, consecrated, and given up over to this Holy Three, to the triune God of heaven, brought under new management. When we are baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, it means we no longer belong to ourselves or to anyone else in this world. Instead, our hearts and our lives, they belong to God. Through baptism, we're entering into a covenant with God. And yes, we're saying that I will trust and follow you, Jesus, or I will raise this child to trust and follow you, Jesus. But God is making an even greater promise in our baptism. And some more important promise that he's making to us. He is guaranteeing that we are his child. Just as he spoke over Jesus, so he declares over us, this is my child whom I love. You are my daughter, you are my son. With you, I am delighted in you. And I always will be. You see, baptism is this uniquely special way that, that God moves towards us in love. It's a tangible assurance that we belong to him. We've come under this new management and our life is hidden in Christ as we are united with him in his death. And we are united with him in his resurrection, raised to the fullness of life in him. It's this moment that happens in our life, at one point in our life, which has ripples throughout the rest of our history, throughout the rest of our days, our seasons, our decades. Because God makes a promise to us. And nothing can take that away from you. And this is such a concrete picture of grace to me. We participate in baptism. And yes, we, we make baptismal vows and promises. But God makes a promise to us too. And if you had to pick, whose decision and promise do you think is more important? Is it your decision to call Jesus your Lord? Or is it God's decision and promise to call you his child? It's really important that we choose to follow Jesus. But we can only love Jesus because he first loved us. And in fact, if our fundamental problem is that we are sinful and have lived in rebellion to God, then before we can move towards trusting and following God, he first needs to move towards us. And we can only choose to love and follow Jesus because he has chosen to love us and move towards us, which is proven by the cross, which is proven by going into the wilderness, which is proven by his incarnation. And we will still need to respond to God. We, we each need to receive and accept his love and promise for ourselves. But God's promise is more important than ours because his promise and love comes first. And even when we would maybe walk away or wonder, 
he won't give up on us. He's going to keep trying to follow us and pursue us. Because that's the kind of God he is. He's the God who goes after the one sheep that's left and leaves the 99 to follow you and to find you. That's the promise he's made to you, that he will always go after you and find you and try to woo you back to him. Luther said that whenever Satan would tempt me to despair of my salvation, I would remember my baptism. And I wonder, can can you see why? Can you see why? Why remembering our baptism is so important. And can you see why the Lenten journey begins with baptism? Because no matter how old you were when you were baptized, God made a promise to you. He made a promise and he declared these words over you. Because you belong to him. You belong to him and he's holding on to you and he loves you and he delights in you. And whenever Satan would whisper lies in your ear and try to muddy the gospel or or shake your identity as Christ's child, whenever he would seek to tempt you to despair of your salvation, know this. God has spoken a better word over you. He's spoken a truer word over you, a word which will never fail, which will never fade. He has said, you are my child. You are his child, whom I love, and you I am well pleased. So this Lent, remember your baptism. Because by it, you have certainty that God has claimed you and adopted you as his own. And he will never let you go. You are Christ's and he is yours. And that is good news. Will you pray with me?